This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Congress brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Hello and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast at HarvardProcessing.com. I am Jason Mann and with me as usual is Rich Krejci. Rich, great to be back with you. Yes, I get to jump back into the uh, the, the WrestleMania series. Unfortunately, I've been uh, out uh, for a while, but I'm, I'm excited to get back to talking on Bill Russell here. So we got a, we got some fun stuff coming up as well. This is going to be a cool little micro series within the series that we're going to be doing in the next few weeks. So uh, I'm yeah, excited to see how it goes. Gonna, yeah, we're, we've we've already done uh, some of the, uh, the 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 finals battles that um, Russell and the Celtics had with the uh, Hawks with uh, Adam Cribbley and the um, and the Lakers with Bajan Bain. Uh, some some great shows there. Uh, so we're gonna kind of dig into uh, some of the other. Um, notable playoff battles that uh, the Celtics had over the years, which I, I think we'll glean some interesting insights from there and talk about a few of the key players from the other teams and um, and, and just kind of get a, a a sense of the league and of Russell's accomplishments and, and so on and so forth. So this should be fun. Um, so the um, the Nationals and Celtics played uh, three times they, in the playoffs, uh, 57, 59, and 61. The Celtics won all of those series. We'll, we'll go into specifics in a moment but first i want to talk about um Dolph shays and um he actually uh he, he passed away fairly recently december 10th 2015 of cancer at age 87 
uh, really one of the early uh, great players of uh, NBA in NBA history. Um, six time All NBA first team, six times on the second team. Um, played uh, played fifteen years and uh, never missed a game for nine seasons. Um, best known for his rebounding and his two handed set shots is. His shot arc so high that his teammates called it Sputnik. And, you know, he was sort of an, a guy, all the obituaries that I read about him sort of kind of consider him a bridge from the old game to the new game because he definitely had his foot sort of in in both sides. And he played from um, 49 through uh, 63, 64. So that certainly, you know, that, that obviously the game <laughs> yeah, covers a transcendent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a transcendent era there of difference of, of what he came into and what he left. It's just it's incredible to think of that yeah. transformation. Yeah. So he um, and, he and he was equally good with uh, his right hand and his left. He shot running uh, one handers. Uh, in fact, he developed the left hand after he broke his right hand to spend most of the season with uh, his, his right hand in a cast. So um, and he, he was a forward, but his, he had an, an outside shot that was about as accurate as guards. Um, excellent free throw shooter as well. He was the first NBA player to score 15,000 points. When he retired, he had played in the most games in NBA history and had the second most points only behind Bob Pettit, also the third most rebounds and the second best uh, free throw percentage. Um, He was a son of Jewish immigrants from Romania, born in the Bronx. Uh, He started NYU and helped them reach the NCAA final at the age of 16. Um, and, you know, um, basketball was very popular in Jewish communities of many cities um, and uh, with with barnstorming teams there were there were Jewish barnstorming teams in the early days of pro basketball before really the, the pro leagues were organized. And the early NBA actually had a very Jewish population, a, a large Jewish population. There was a, um, you know, a, a pretty um, big community <coughs> of, um, you know, of Jewish players. Um, and it was, you know, being that. Uh, there a lot of the cities had a large Jewish population, so it, it definitely had an appeal there. And he, um, in 1977, he coached the um, United States game to the gold medal in the uh, in, in the uh, the Maccabi Games, uh, the Jewish Olympics in Israel. So, which was a kind of a big upset there. So he um, also is known for probably being the best Jewish player in uh, NBA history. Absolutely. Uh, and just a quick thing, uh, his son, uh, Danny Shays, actually had a very uh, I, I, kind of surprising. I, I, I know I'd heard the name and I know he had been in the league for a while, but I was actually kind of surprised at how productive he was. I mean, he was in the league for 18 seasons uh, and his best year coming, I'd say definitely his best year coming on the 87-88 uh, Denver Nuggets, which is definitely the best Denver Nuggets team of the Doug Moe crazy, let's score as many points as humanly possible uh, Denver Nuggets team. And he averaged 13.9 points per game, 8.2 rebounds per game uh, and had 8.8 win shares that year and that's just a crazy team as well i mean they ended up i think they made it to the western conference semifinals if i remember correctly uh and they lost to the mavericks yeah they, so they did make it to the yeah. uh, semifinals lost to the mavericks uh 154 that year but uh yeah a, a, actually a really good team you know alex english of course uh at, at the top of his powers fat lever jay vincent michael adams and then danny shays right there uh and he's a guy who again like yeah, i said 18 seasons in the league and and i hung around a lot longer than maybe i maybe i remember or most people do remember uh he's not just a you know his his father's son he's he actually kind of carved out his own little uh, pretty decent career in the NBA uh, as well. So, yeah, kind of kind of fun little facts on, on his son. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so the uh, the Nationals and the Nationals um, became the 76ers uh, in 1964. They moved from Syracuse to uh, Philadelphia after a couple years after the Warriors had left Philadelphia. So, um, so the uh, and in fact, his number four jersey was recently retired by the uh, 76ers. Um, a little a little bit late uh, on that, but uh, but a nice honor nonetheless. Um, so the uh, the Celtics had had a pretty stout rivalry with the Nationals pre um, pre Bill Russell. Of course, when you only have eight teams in your league and six of them make the playoffs, it's easy to get some playoff rivalries. But uh, the uh, the Nationals had won the 1955 NBA title and had made the 54 and 50 finals all with Dolph Shays as the uh, top player. And they made the division finals or finals in nine out of 12 years. So they were, you know, advancing pretty far in the playoffs, even if it was, you know, just just a round or two during those times. Um, And they they faced off uh, four years in a row prior to uh, the 57 uh, when Russell joins the team. 53, the Celtics actually won 2-0. 54, the Nationals won 3-1, made the finals that year. In 55, the Nationals won again 3-1. And in 56, they won 2-1. So... Um, in, uh, so the first series in 57, the uh, Celtics won in a 3-0 sweep in the Eastern Division Finals. The, uh, the, the Nationals were, um, were 38 and, uh, 34. The, um, the, the Celtics were a, a high 50s win team. I don't have the exact number here, but they were, it was a definitely better team and won their, won the division at that time. Uh, the Nationals had beaten the, um, 56 champion Warriors 2-0 in the semis. It was the first time the defending champs had been swept, and it also avenged a Warriors win over the Nationals in 56. And um, the Celtics were led by uh, Bob Cousy, who was the 57 MVP. They also had Bill Sharman. They had some veterans, uh, Andy Phillip and Arnie Risen, who had come over from other teams. Uh, they also had uh, Jack Nichols, who was a veteran who had played on our box teams in Washington and in Tri-Cities before he came to the Celtics and uh, retired after 58. Um, also, uh, Jack Nichols, during his last three years with the uh, Celtics, he attended uh, dental school full-time and earned his Doctor of Dentistry in 1958, which is, uh, of course, you don't see a lot of uh, players today uh, attending dental school. <laughs> who, uh, who, would be the, who would be the one player in the league that you think would attend dental school? Uh, yeah, Andre Miller? I don't know if he counts. Does he count? Does Andrew Miller count? Okay, I, I guess. Player I, I, under yeah. the age of 50. <laughs> player under the age of 50. Uh, oh, all right. Because he looks um, like a dentist. He can't count the guy. Okay. Like, well, He I, might be I, a dentist. For all I know, he might just have that in his back pocket. He's just waiting all for right, that. We'll, to... we'll look that up later. So. <laughs> uh, I'm sticking with Professor. So, All right. Well, know. that's a cop out, right. but that's fine. Uh, well, fair <laughs> enough. <I> mean, <laughs> that's a great answer. Such, it's such a good answer. That's the problem. That's why I'm yes. very upset by it, but. And they also had Frank Ramsey and uh, Jim Loskatoff, who were uh, both uh, had weren't rookies, but were young players on the uh, team. And this was Bill Russell's rookie year. Tom Heinsohn was a rookie as well, who had actually won the rookie of the year that year. Russell had coming in coming in about a third of the way into the season. So um, the Nationals, on the other hand, were um, their key players were Shays, of course, um, Red Kerr, who had come in the title season and had made a big difference there. He was a center. Um, later, of course, important in uh, Chicago Bulls uh, fo- folklore. Um, Earl Lloyd, who was one of the first um, African-American players in the NBA. Um, uh, Paul Seymour was a player coach who had just taken over from longtime coach and former player Al Servi. And Ed Conlon, who was in his second year. The new pl- newcomers were um, Al Bianchi, Joe Holup, Bob Hopkins, Togo Palasi, who is one of my favorite uh, 
50. Yeah, 50s. Yeah, it actually come from Boston that season. And but probably my favorite uh, new um, random trivia NBA player. Uh, you, you you take this one, Rick. Yeah, so this guy, uh, I think, is our new favorite. Our team, or, or at least our podcast's favorite uh, new player is Forrest Frosty Abel. Uh, who has an incredible name, an incredible nickname, and maybe my favorite NBA career of all time. Uh, I'm going to read you his, uh, his line here, his career line. Uh, he played one minute, one game. He got one rebound, one assist, one personal foul, and two field goal attempts. Yes. What a so, man. Like he, yes. he, he got in there and was like, I am making the most of this. Like, I, I am Frosty Abel, and I do not get in many games. I'm going to make the most. And like, I, I, how do you, in one minute, how do you get a rebound and assist, a foul, and shoot twice? Uh, what was the fast-paced game? I guess. I mean, geez. Like, yeah, so, like that guy dominated the game. Like, were they forcing him the ball? Or, like, it, it has to be, right? It's got to be like a Boban, uh, you know, for the Spurs type deal or, or like a Brian Scalabrini yeah. thing where it's like... Do it for Frosty, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, like, that's, like yes. that's a line. That is a hell of a line for one minute. But, uh, yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for, for old Frosty Abel, that was his uh, his final... Uh, that's fine. That was it for us. Yeah, well, one minute to one game. Yeah, <laughs> that's not great. But uh, the guys, I think who have that. Uh, I think Basketball Reference has that listed somewhere. But oh, the, the guys uh, only played a minute. Yeah, actually, not here. While while you're talking with the next guy, I'm going to look up all of our uh, our one all right, minute well, of all I'll time guys. The, I'll describe the series. You do whatever you want to do with this. But, I'm, I'm derailing this entire episode while I talked about Frosty Abel. But you do whatever right, the Celtics Russell thing that you're doing right now is. So all right, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, the, the Celtics won games one and two easily. Uh, game three was an 83-80 Celtics win in Boston. Uh, Bill, or excuse me, uh, Shays had uh, 22 points, including 12 of 12 from the line. Seymour had 15. Meanwhile, Boston was led by Sharman with 23. Loskadoff, uh, Kuzi, Heinz, and Russell all were in double fig- figures. In fact, Russell averaged 15.3 points and 30-plus rebounds uh, during this series. We don't have the exact number of rebounds, but uh, we know it's more than 30. Um, Seymour was uh, forced to sit Red Kerr for long stretches uh, against the Celtics uh, because Russell would always block his hook shot, according to uh, to King of the Court. Uh, Kerr's quote is, I play 60 games in the hole during the season, meaning in, meaning, um, in the paint, and 12 outside against Russell just because, you know, he, uh, he was unable to, um, like a lot of people, was unable to get his shot off uh, while being defended against uh, Russell. So, so Richard, you find uh, I did. I got. I have eight players all time that have played uh, one minute or less. So, uh, Ooh, tell me, okay. tell me your favorite memory of each of these guys, please. I'll, I'll, right. I'll pause and let you have a moment. Uh, Alex okay. Scales on the 2006 San Antonio Spurs. You remember him? Oh, old Scalies. <laughs> old Alex yeah. Scales. Yeah. Uh, Andy yeah. Panko on the 2001 Atlanta Hawks. Oh, old 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 Pancreas. Yeah, I remember him. <laughs> uh, Cedric Hunter on the 92 uh, Hornets. Uh, Norm, oh, yeah. <laughs> Norm Grenken, I think I'm pronouncing that right, on the uh, 54 Philadelphia Warriors. Uh, oh, yeah, a old, little, old Grenken, absolutely. Yeah. This guy doesn't even need a nickname. James on Curry from the 2010 Los Angeles Clippers. So he's just James on. Okay. You don't even need to add anything there. Yeah, old old James on. Yeah, yeah. that's a, a Barry Sumpter. Yeah, James on, James off. Yeah. <laughs> right. Barry Sumpter uh, from the 89 Clippers. Oh, yeah, old Sumpty. Yeah. Yep. Dave Schultz from the 70 Philadelphia uh, 76ers. Uh, and then old Frosty Abel. Now a, a good one. Dave Scholes is the only one to score. He had two points. I want to. Uh, who had the most uh, uh, field goal attempts of all these players that have played a minute or less? Oh, um, I would guess because uh, you're James you, on Curry. Because no, uh, believe it or not, he never got a shot off. 
Your number one field goal attempts is old Frosty Abel with those two. Uh, he threw those two in there. Dave Scholes had, uh, he was one for one, so that's a solid career. I hope he took the game ball home. Uh, and then Barry Sumter, who uh, unfortunately missed his one attempt. But uh, that's uh, it. And uh, uh, Forrest is also the only one to record a rebound, the only one to record an assist. Uh, not the only one to record a foul, though. Uh, or Norm Grenkin also uh, jumped in and got a foul on that as well. So uh, for, Frosty Abel is uh, definitely the uh, the most efficient uh, one game or one minutes yeah. uh, player in NBA history. So uh, yeah, well, he was zero for two from field time. Well, uh, <laughs> but yeah. you know, hey, it's not all about scoring. All right, it's not all about. You know, there's other aspects sure. of the game, Jason. All right, so let's uh, yeah. let's let Frosty Abel off the hook a little bit. Yeah, fouling. and fouling. Right. Yeah, it was a good foul. Yeah. It was a good foul. The guy had a, a wide open foul. lane to the to the basket. So you get a good yeah. foul. You wrap him up and you know take him to the line. So. There you go. Good, good times. I that's a, that's a nice. Uh, I'm <laughs> glad I've learned that. So, uh, so the 1959 Eastern Division Finals. This was the uh, th- this was the the best series between these two teams. Um, Celtics won it in seven. Uh, the records that that year, the Celtics were 52 and 20. Nationals were 35 and 37. So not necessarily a good regular season team, but uh, there there's some context here that. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, the Nationals had beaten the Knicks 2-0 in the previous round. This was, in fact, the Knicks' last playoff appearance until 1967, which is pretty impressive considering, again, there were only eight or later nine teams in the league during this time, and six of them made the playoffs. So the Knicks to be able to miss the playoffs <laughs> that many times in a row is a, that's, that's a accomplishment. It's almost like the Knicks now. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's almost akin to, again, half the league going into the playoffs and the Knicks somehow yeah. finding a way not to get in there, but... Yeah. We just got um, now. People are very mad at me, but that's all right. Well, it's okay. They're, they're <laughs> mad at us for you know. We have, they have a lot of reasons to be mad at us, so we'll, we'll be all right. Uh, so we, we've got uh, we got Russell, we've got Kuzi, we got Charmin, we got Heinsohn, we got Ramsey, we got Loskadoff, and we got Sam Jones there as well. Um, and Ryzen, Phillip, and Nichols have all uh, retired. Some new players for the uh, Celtics. We have Gene Conley, who was also a uh, who was also a baseball pitcher. Um, pitched for um, Milwaukee, I believe, and um, maybe the Yankees as well. I'm, um, I'm he definitely was a experienced pitcher, but also uh, served as Bill Russell's backup for a few years. Um, Casey Jones was. Um, uh, the uh, rookie who, of course, had played with um, a good friend of Bill Russell's who had played with him at the University of San Francisco. We've talked about uh, Casey's influence on uh, Russell and in, in other shows. And um, you made a note here of uh, Gene Conley, not the only uh, MLB NBA uh, crossover. No, there's quite a few, actually. And this, uh, in doing research for this and uh, an episode we're going to do later in this series, uh, looking at uh, Dave DeBuscher, uh, I got kind of interested in looking at some of the histories of, of some of these guys. And there's a few, and I might actually write something up about these guys if I, I get a chance. But some of the famous ones, uh, people do, of course, most people know the Danny Angel one. He played for the, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. It's also Ron Reed. Uh, Dave DeBuscher was one that I completely forgot, and he played for my, you know, my hometown White Sox as well and I completely I, I like I forgot and then like David Busher has another we'll talk about it in our other show you know he also coached for a little while too he had a, a just a fascinating career before he really reached like the peak that we all sort of know him as like he had this little first and second life before we even know uh, that but of course Jim Conley as you mentioned David Busher, Ron Reed Danny Ainge there's a few other ones as well uh, and most recently Mark Hendrickson is uh, a crossover uh, MLB and NBA player but uh, I do not see that happening ever again that's uh, it's just weird yeah. skill sets like you know what I mean like I, I could see, like I could see, like you know, NFL and MLB happening. I mean, it, it seems so wild that any of them can happen again. But the idea of like an MLB and an NBA player happening again just seems so radical. Like they just seem like such different skill sets that uh, it's amazing that there's only that there's even been you know nine or whatever people that have done it. Right? Has there ever been a uh, NBA NFL crossover? 
Oh man, I, mean, I would just imagine those seasons sort of um, <laughs> overlap too much, but that's an interesting one. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I I remember maybe looking it up, but I don't remember the answer. So, well, anybody if if they know, they can uh, please do. Yes, yeah, over and back NBA. So, um, uh, also, so the uh, the Nationals team, um, a good bit different. Um, here they we have um we have Shays. Uh, Red Kerr, uh, Conlon, uh, Bianchi, uh, Hopkins, uh, Palasi still there. Larry Costello, who came over in '58 from the uh, Warriors, would later be an important part of the uh, some '76ers teams, and then would be the coach of the uh, Bucks during the Kareem years. And uh, Seymour, who was at the very end of his career. Um, new players were um, Hal Greer, who was a rookie, would later be a, a top 50 player, another important part of the uh, '76ers rivalry with Russell. Um, Connie Dierking, who would be a part of the, uh, who would be part of a uh, 76ers uh, Warriors trade that would land the 76ers Will, Will Chamberlain, and then uh, George Yardley, who um, was a a really stout scorer of the uh, in the 1950s, um, was traded from Detroit uh, in the uh, mid middle of the season. Uh, he'd actually led the NBA in points um, the previous year, 58. But was near the end of his career. He was, could still play, but he basically just hated the NBA life and was ready to uh, get out of it. And um, uh, of course, the money was not uh, what it is today. Um, and also, the, the the Pistons were a notoriously um, anti-union, anti-worker organization. The, their owner was a notoriously anti-union, so I'm, I'm guessing the the pay was not uh, particularly a stout for uh, for the Pistons during that time. So. Um, She's actually called this team the best that they ever had in Syracuse. I, I'm assuming once Yardley came on board because basically that gave them a, a second score. And if you look at the box scores of these um, games, uh, Yardley is definitely providing a, a a big scoring punch during this time. In fact, uh, Game Two, which was the, you know, one of the first um, one of the close games of the series, uh, Boston wins 128-120. Uh, Shays had 34, Yardley had 27, um, Kuzi had 27, and um, and then uh, uh and Charman, Russell, and Ramsey all scored uh, 19 or 20 in the game. Uh, Boston had did have three wins of 21 points or more in this series. Um, which honestly, it's an interesting thing about the like Boston, I feel like in the early the late 50s and early 60s is that in a lot of these series they would lose all the close games and then would win uh most more of the blowouts yeah yeah i i noticed that in doing a lot of research as well it's a very unique thing <laughs> yeah it, it, it happened a lot with the hawks and um and you know that kind of shows like that boston was generally the regular season team but it's weird that they had such problems winning losing those um close games given that they, they of course have this reputation you know well deserved given what they did in game sevens of um of you know being the clutch team but but at least in the early days it was more that they would win you know by blowouts and then they would lose the uh, close games so it did seem uh going through you know of course looking at a bunch of these series it seemed like there was games that whenever whenever they played like their pace like the very quick pace it would be like a blowout but anytime it was sort of like a slowdown game it seemed like it was always close so it's it's interesting to see and i i know it's a lot of really really close games and a lot of the ones that they dropped were games that were solo a very you know not super low scoring but maybe in the 80s and the 90s and the ones that they won were like you know the 120 or the ones that they really blew out were like 120 they'd win by you know 20 points or whatever doing that so it's an interesting thought but yeah i think maybe a little bit deeper dive would be fun uh looking into that and looking at you know uh the, the anatomy of the games that they lost the close games that they lost compared to the ones that they they had big blowouts in yeah absolutely um 
so Shea's averaged 28.4 uh, points in the series, uh, Yardley 25.7. Ramsey, meanwhile, was leading scorer for the uh, Celtics, which is interesting because he was, the, of course, the sixth man um, coming off the bench, but he was still able to lead the team in scoring in certain situ- situations. Kuzi at 21.0, Russell 19.1. And according to King of the Court, um, Kuzi and Shea's both dealt with stomach viruses. Ramsey sprained his finger, Shea sprained his ankle, and Yardley had a cast on his non-shooting hand during the series. So a lot of, a lot of guys are banged up. And of course, you know, it was during this time, I'm, uh, you know, guys didn't miss uh, games that much, you know, because uh, the, you know, the, it was just harder to, uh, they didn't have the same um, benefits they do today. If they, you know, they don't play they uh, enough, they lose their job and um, it's a bad situation. So they, you know, were um, gutting it, gutting out more injuries than they certainly should have been. And, you know, that should kind of in shortened careers and a lot of other problems they had. But, uh, the uh, the best game of the series was a uh, pretty classic game seven. The Celtics win 130 to 125. The Nationals have a, a 16 point lead in the second quarter. And um, c- kind of a funny story by uh, Celtics broadcaster uh, Johnny Most uh, during this um, uh, during this game. Yeah, that's uh, it's a common issue that happens uh, with a lot of us when we get really excited uh, watching basketball. Uh, but yeah, Celtics broadcaster Johnny Most, he uh, he got so excited, he nearly lost his dentures over the rail of the uh, upper press box, which is a current thing that happens with all... Uh uh, Mike Tirico, I know, complains about it all the time. Is you know when he gets in the moment, and uh, uh, Hubie Brown might come. I, I don't know. Hubie might it might be an issue for Hubie Brown, but uh, not many other broadcasters uh, have dentures anymore. So yeah, he nearly lost his dentures over uh, the the uh, over the rail of the upper press deck, which would have been an interesting uh, find for anybody below him that, that had a pair of dentures land in their lap and uh, no clue what to do with that. Like I, I don't know how you react to that, but uh, yeah, very very interesting and just kind of a microcosm of of old school announcers were were nice sweet old dudes now they're all you know these young whippersnappers and yeah. which is funny because johnny most was like still the announcer like in the 80s so how old would he have been and still had dentures in uh yeah, that's in true yeah you're right 59 uh, of course you know i mean dental health was <laughs> yeah how old we won't, how, we won't dwell on that too. no let, let's let's dwell uh, let, uh no i'm just joking let's see how how old was johnny how old johnny most was at that point yeah i'm just kind of curious well he oh, so he died in 93 Three. He was born in twenty three. So he was born in nineteen twenty three. So yeah, he wasn't that old. Jeez. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was forty ish. So yeah, floss. Uh, yeah. Well, well. Uh, teeth. Kids, <laughs> yeah, that's all exactly. So. What a PSA from from Jason and Rich. Yes. So his story said, uh, or he also said that he said in the second half it was the most perfectly played basketball game I've ever seen. Heinsohn often said it was the best game he ever played in. So. Uh, after being down by 16 in the second quarter, the Celtics charged back in the third. Um, and uh, then Syracuse surged again, but Boston held them off. Uh, in the final minute with Boston up three, Kuzi uh, flipped up a, a one-hander to beat the shot clock after having sort of dribbled time off the clock. And uh, fans uh, carried Kuzi on their shoulders. Um, Russell, despite fouling out in the closing minutes, had 18 points, 32 rebounds. Uh, Shays had 35 Yardley had 32, Ramsey had 28, and Kuzi had 25 with 10 assists. So, uh, it was a good, good performance by uh, <laughs> by the Nationals, but the uh, Celtics just were a little bit better. So, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so now we go to 1961 Eastern Division Finals again. Uh, Celtics uh, are win four to one against the Nationals. The uh, this year, the Nationals are 38 and 41. Um, the uh, Celtics are 57 and 22. 
the uh, Nationals had swept a 46-win Warriors team 3-0. This was uh, actually Wilt's second season, so that was, that was kind of a bit of a surprise for the Warriors to lose um, that series with uh, with with Wilt there. Um, the uh, key Celtics were um, Russell, of course, uh, Kuzi, Heinsohn, Sam Jones, Ramsey, Casey Jones, and Bill Sharman, who was in his last season. Uh, Gene Conley and Los Kotoff are still there. Uh, the key new player is uh, Satch Sanders, who was a NYU grab, a power forward who was a, a, a great rebounder and um, and stuck with the uh, the Celtics through the uh, early 70s. I, I believe he got eight rings as well, um, seven or eight. Certainly he's, he's up there. Mm-hmm. In the, uh, uh, a lot of Celtics are up there, of course, in those uh, ring totals. Uh, Nationals, meanwhile, they've overhauled a bit here. Um, they have Shays, and this is actually the first time he did not lead the team in win shares after 11 seasons. So he's starting to slow down. He's in his um, he's in his mid 30s. Uh, Hal Greer has picked it up. Um, uh, Red Kerr, Larry Costello, uh, Bianchi's still there. And they have a new coach, uh, Alex Hannum, who would uh, later move on to the Warriors in San Francisco and then return to the franchise. Uh, Returned to the 76ers with uh, Wilt again. So he, he coached Wilt twice, once with the Warriors and once with the 76ers. He also had previously coached the Hawks. Um, he would coach, um, I think he coached in the ABA as well. So he, he certainly bounced around the uh, league. Uh, this was also the uh, the second year in the NBA for Dick Barnett, uh, who would then jump to the ABL and then later play with the uh, Lakers for a few years in the 60s and then and then most famously play with the uh, the. Uh, the Knicks dynasty of the early 70s. They also had uh, Dave Gamby, um, who would stick around for the uh, 60s and play with a lot of those um, 76ers teams. Uh, Barney Cable and the uh, the tallest player in NBA history, seven foot three, Sweet Halbrook. What yeah, do we know about Sweet? Sweet uh, well, we we know he got he disappeared a lot. <laughs> He's a very interesting <laughs> fellow. So of course he was the tallest, as you mentioned, tallest player uh, in history at that point. Uh, he was a star at Oregon State, but he only played uh, two seasons in the NBA. Played some semi pro basketball before that. Uh, Alex Hannum said that he gave Wilt a lot of trouble. Uh, I think Wilt even said I uh, had a quote or two about it as well. Uh, evidence doesn't really quite bear that out. That, that that he had that much issue with it, but it was sort of a, a, a tale or a narrative that, that he gave him trouble, mostly because of his size, being 7'3". Yeah. Uh, but then the, the funnest fact about uh, old Swede is that he would uh, disappear for days at a time. And here's a quote uh, from Alex Hannum. Uh, he could have had a worthwhile career if he had taken care of himself. During his second season, he disappeared for a week, and we sent the police to look for him. But they couldn't find a 7-footer. <laughs> he came back on his own, but he would never tell me where he had been. So uh, Alex Hannum wondering how you could lose a 7-foot man. Uh, and then, yeah, he just uh, would disappear and not come back and then um in later life he worked as a circus clown and was given the title of the world's tallest clown so uh sweet albrook uh that's that's all we know i don't that's all i know about sweet albrook uh, I think well, that, that, that's you know that's a uh, so he and there's a famous photo of him and uh, Russell um, when they're in college uh, against each other like standing like side by side and, and sort of like the reach and 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 Halbrook is obviously taller but Russell had such a great reach that that the reach is actually fairly equal yeah, to uh, yeah. you know which is which is interesting there um, I think that's talked about in King of the Court as well. Um, so and uh, not surprisingly, Russell's team um, won that uh, won that game, uh, given that they won fifty five games in a row. Um, so I think an interesting thing, thing about that, and we'll kind of get into this when we talk about the uh, the Celtics seventy sixers rival, is that uh, uh, Bianchi, uh, Costello, Greer, Kerr, Gamby, and uh, so those five players and Shays as coach would all be part of the. Uh, 
the 76ers rivalry with the Celtics just a few years later. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, it's sort of interesting because um, the uh, when the Nationals moved to Philadelphia, they initially had trouble gaining acceptance with the fans because the fans were had just been booing the Nationals, you know, against the Warriors just a few years before. So now all these players who had played for the Nationals are suddenly representing the home team, and you know the, the fans aren't really into it. It wasn't really until Wilt got you know came back to Philadelphia. And that you know the fans kind of started to come, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a uh, unique situation. Like imagine like that happening yeah. now, like a team that you know, like a big rivalry, and then like that team that you hated, you know, replaces yeah. your team. And it's so like, oh, right, yeah, <laughs> like, that would, yeah, hi, that would just be, like, right, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, all these guys, yeah, it, it, that would be weird. It, it, there's, I, I can't think of any situation where um, that's you know anywhere kind of near like that. So, um, anyway, the um, there's a fun story from game one. Um, the uh, it's from King of the Court. Uh, the uh, the refs whistle blew as Russell was getting a rebound, and he gave an incredulous double take. A dog had wandered onto the court and stopped under his legs. So, <laughs> dog on the court. Yep, a common occurrence in today's NBA as well. So, yeah, oh, come on. <laughs> who brought their do- like? Who brought their dog to the arena in the first place? Like that. That's how do you get a dog in there? Do you just kind of like? Um, yeah, I don't know how you, I don't know how you sneak a dog in there. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's you know there were there are rats in the arenas famously, so maybe you know uh, <laughs> they got a, a, dog, a, a, they're not really catching the rats. So I don't really know what's going on. Now you could catch uh, some dogs can catch rats. I don't know, not right. not well. I mean, they more or less just kind of tell you where a rat is, but uh, that, that's fine. <laughs> cats make more sense. I would I would assume more cats come on it because cats are everywhere. I mean, like, baseball there's always cats running on the damn field, but you know dogs that's an interesting case. Unless it was uh, maybe it was a bark at the uh, arena promotion that. They were running <laughs> during the NBA Finals. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure the Eastern Division Finals. Well, you know, honestly, they needed like, attendance. They probably could have used the extra yeah, little boost I mean, in attendance. So. Yeah, I mean, honestly, with uh, you know some of the stuff that happened in the early NBA, that wouldn't attend. Like the ABA, I'm, I'm positive. Like there, there's probably not a report, but there were at least like seven dogs running on the court during ABA games. But I don't have any facts on that. But yeah. makes sense yeah. that that would happen. Two, but two of them referees. <laughs> Dog. Uh, I love the ABA. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to have video. Um, like, there's got to be some vault of like NBA or like ABA VHSs somewhere, right? Like, somebody uh, had to record them. Please, come uh, on. I mean, we got nothing. We have nothing. They didn't really have VHS then, so uh, Betamax. Like widespread. Uh, so there you go. Damn it. Um. <laughs> anyway, um, so they have, yeah, no, okay. They, not, not good. We series. not good VHS. Go on, continue. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> every game in this uh, series was a blowout. The the Nats won game two, 115 to 98. Um. And in uh, in Game Four uh, in Syracuse, there's uh, sort of a famous incident of three fans storming the court, fighting with Rao- with Auerbach and some of the Celtics. And then later, the fans tried to sue, and there's an infamous pic of Auerbach getting a subpoena while in his underwear that ran actually in the newspapers. Um, <laughs> so, which is pretty uh, a shady thing for a newspaper to do. Um, and that, that story's from King of the Court. It, it's other places as well, but it's a it, it's a pretty uh, interesting one. Uh, you know, just kind of shows the rowdiness of uh, the NBA at the time. And Syracuse was a particularly um, notorious place for people to play. I mean, that that was uh, you know the, the small towns would really get into the, uh, the the NBA. I mean, Fort Wayne was a hard place to uh, play. I mean, you know, Rochester. You know, all those uh, all those venues. I mean, it kind of makes sense because um, you know you just you you have you're going to have a very intimate arenas where those teams are playing and you're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a different, different environment and you're going to have a lot of noise and a lot of you know, people being on top of you and just going to add to the um, craziness of what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I yeah, guess that not behave either. So no, yeah. no, these damn ruffians, but no, yeah, I mean, <laughs> 
I mean, they throw batteries in the on the on the court, you know, and, and even stuff like that. I mean, they're throwing like tomatoes and onions at players, and I mean, there's there's, uh, yeah, uh, just so much craziness going on uh, during this time. In um, you know, uh, it, it, we've talked about just random like weird crowd stuff with you know even going into the '80s. We, you know, talked about with the um, the '88 finals with you know the Lakers fans running onto the court. You know, when uh, right right as that game is ending, that kind of stuff. So you know, uh, what can you do? Um, so game five, Boston closed it out at home, 123 to 101. Boston had 25, or excuse me, Russell had 25 points and 33 rebounds in that game. Series averages, Russell had 20 point, uh, six points per game, actually leading his team for once, which is unusual. Sharman had 20, Ramsey had 19. Meanwhile, Shays had 23.2 and Barnett, uh, had 19.4. So, um, so not, not, not too much exciting about that series, but um, but but it happened. And uh, other than, yeah, other than the uh, the the our back in his underwear story, not a lot of uh, and the dog on the court. Those are the uh, two highlights of that series. <laughs> I'd say that's that's a that's too many highlights. That's that's a lot of good highlights. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. There you go. But... There you go. So <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll continue somewhat with uh, the, the the Nationals in a few years with uh, when we get to the Seventy uh, Sixers mm-hmm. uh, franchise and. Um, and Russell in starting in '65, but we, we've we've got a few uh, rivalries to go in between that that we uh, that, that we need to cover before we get there. But uh, but definitely some interesting stuff. Yeah, no, it's going to be a fun little series as well because you know going through this and doing the research and looking at the na- like the just the names that we're going to mention and the people, it's just like amazing. I mean, of course, you know he played 13 years and they were you know obviously 13 you know huge years and, and impactful years, but just to to see the amount of names that kind of come in and, and, and the amount of series and the amount of games that they had between the Celtics team, I mean, it's it, the idea of you using you know bill russell as like sort of the, the the center of all of it it just works so perfectly because you see how much revolved around that guy during that period and, and how much revolved around him and those celtics teams so yeah this series is going to be really cool and i think a lot of people are going to be interested uh just at how deep you know each of these little episodes and each of these little micro episodes get with 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 those different matchups and the different players and just the stories and stuff coming from all these different matchups so yeah i think it's gonna yeah. be it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah i, I think it's interesting interesting to see how the teams evolve over you know like the you know two or three years or you know uh, every other couple every other couple of years the right. turnovers the team has and um and and, and we talked about it before but the i think the one thing that stood out with the celtics is that they, they had so much stability and they had so much um you know they were able to they knew what, what guys they wanted they were able to keep it together and they didn't have the kind of turnover that most almost every other franchise have and we're gonna be talking about you know in here we're talking about playoff rivals we're talking about the the teams that were relatively successful um you know not to mention the teams that you know like the knicks and you know at least until the late 60s and um you know in in the pistons up, up until then and you know the, the teams that didn't really make the playoffs during this time we're not really going to talk about them but um you know even the, the the medium teams um that weren't as good as the celtics but weren't as bad as the um as we talked about, they still, um, you know, by comparison, the the Celtics were just so such a you know amazing stable organization, and everyone else is kind of in somewhat uh, of chaos. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because you look at again, you know. Um the well, because you know we're doing the key Celtics in that part, and, and you see, and it's like almost the same thing. We can almost copy and paste, the, you know, the key Celtics every single year. But then the other teams, it's, it's just radical movements in terms of like we're talking about here, the Nationals, who in a few years will not even be exist anymore. They'll be a completely, you know, right. and, and like, and, but yet the Celtics, like other, say for you know, there are a few guys here and there, for the most part, is the same core each year, and so it's kind of funny to see everybody else sort of do whatever they can to compete and do this and, and survive, and, and and honestly, yeah, in that era, NBA survive in the city 
and make money and do all that sort of stuff and keep the players together and keep their franchises stable. And the Celtics just keep chugging along, chugging along, chugging along. So it's a, it's a fun sort of uh, uh, dichotomy between the Celtics and, and all these other teams we're going to talk about. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, anything else, Rich? Uh, I believe that's it. Cool. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking it out. We appreciate it. You can find us at harborproxism.com. You can find Over and Back NBA Podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. And we would appreciate uh, ratings and uh, reviews, uh, positive ones, if you could. It would be nice. And um, you can find us on Twitter and book at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.